Lindsay. And I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, we are finally diving into dwarf and pygmy sperm whales. Plus, a full-size sperm whale's whale story. Woohoo! So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. It's finally happening! Hooray! So excited to learn more about these cool animals. Oh, they're so cool. So cool. And I feel like we have kind of teased this episode on multiple previous episodes. I know we talked about it in our sperm whale episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were like, okay, we're going to do pygmies and dwarfs separately, but it's come up in a couple of other episodes. Yeah. Too, so I think the whale Olympics. loyal listeners, yeah. thank you. <laughs> thank you for waiting. <laughs> we did it. We hope it is worth it. Lindsay, can you take it away and tell us some of the basic stats about dwarf sperm whales? I can. We'll start with them. Hooray. So dwarf sperm whales are gray with a pale crescent-shaped mark between their eye and their flipper, sometimes called a fake gill. Oh. Um, and then they have a square Which head. Which makes sense because it does look that way. Like, Well, it looks like oh, yeah. an operculum. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. It looks like an operculum. Mm-hmm. They have a square head, a small jaw, and a robust body. They are about 2 to 2.7 meters long and weigh about 136 to 272 kilos. That's really specific for... Oh, because it's yeah. more round in, in pounds. <laughs> that makes more sense. <laughs> um, and their range is temperate to tropical oceans worldwide. And they are suction feeders who mainly eat squid, which is mm. probably going to be a theme, my guess. Yes. Indeed. Oh. Indeed. Uh so dwarf sperm whales were first described in 1866 by Richard Owen, and they were based on illustrations by the naturalist Sir Walter Elliot. Uh, it was thought from 1878, I guess when they discovered pygmy sperm whales, until 1998 that they were the same species as the pygmy sperm whale. But as you will learn later, they are now two separate species. They hang out in small groups or pods of one to four members. Um, their vocals are interesting they don't whistle they produce uh narrow band high frequency clicks that sound a little bit more like dolphin and porpoise vocals rather than their deep diving uh what we would think of as other deep diving whales like beaked whales and sperm whales we don't know a lot about these whales because their sightings are so rare so most of what we know comes from beached individuals uh, and many of the ones that we find Stranded on beaches, have di- we learn, have died from parasitic infections or from heart failure, which is interesting. Um, the dwarf sperm whale is hunted in small numbers through Asia, and it's most threatened by ingesting or getting entangled by marine debris. Uh, there's no global population estimate because they're so rarely sighted. Um, they've been taking... They've done population counts in certain areas where they are like more frequently sighted, but it's really hard to know the overall estimate. Uh, so they think maybe... In the North Atlantic, there's about 3,785 individuals. And then in the East Pacific, maybe 11,200 individuals. Um, But again, super broad estimates. Uh, Their conservation status, though, is least concern. Uh, I think just because these populations probably have been pretty steady. um, And like where they are commonly found is also like where there's not a lot of people. So hopefully they're doing okay. Hopefully. So that's the dwarf sperm whale. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the pygmy sperm whale. So similar in sort of description, but with a couple of differences. Their underside is a creamy sort of sometimes even pinkish color. And then their back and sides are a bluish gray. 
They have a shark-like head, or I think it's kind of a puppy dog head. I think both of them look a little puppy-ish. <laughs> Uh, and it's very large in comparison to its body size. It almost looks swollen, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even more so than the, the dwarf sperm whale. They also have the same false gill, and it's behind each eye. They are a bit bigger, though. So they are about three and a half meters long or 11 feet long, and they can weigh about 400 kilograms or 880 pounds. They are found in tropical and temperate waters in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans, and sometimes even in colder waters, like off of the coast of Russia. And, as Lindsay mentioned in the theme, they are primarily cephalopod eaters. So, mostly squid. Uh, they can get some of the super cool bioluminescent mm. species of squid found in midwater environments, and occasionally octopuses, but mostly squid. Pygmy sperm whales were first described by a naturalist with the craziest name ever. Henri Marie du Roquette de Blainville. That was a horrible <laughs> accent of that, but it was like 17 words. So, anyway. Um, in 1838 uh, is when he described them. He based this on the head of an individual that washed up on the coast in France in 1784, which had been stored in a museum. He recognized it as a type of sperm whale. They do all kind of have that squariness. Um, and assigned it to the same genus genus as the sperm whale, which sperm whales, normal size, are Physester macrolocephalus, and he called this one Physester brevisimpus. He noticed its small size and named it the small-headed sperm whale, and the Latin name of the species is short-headed. So it's all about, they're sperm whales, but they're tiny, which makes sense if eventually calling them pygmy. Um, in 1846, they came up with a different zoologist came up with the, the genus Kogia for the pygmy sperm whale and said it was an intermediate between sperm whales and dolphins, um, which is... Yeah, um, questionable, but, you know, it was 1800s. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, these guys are found solitary or in pairs, but they have been seen in groups up to six. We don't know much about them, so they, it's, so we, uh, they are also listed as lowest, lower risk, least concern. Um, but it does face some current issues. There's been some stranding in Florida Sound. Um, due to its slow-moving and quiet nature, the species is also at risk for boat strike, and its small size allows it to, to become a byproduct of commercial fishing caught in seine nets. Anthropogenic noise is also an issue for them, and because it echolocates similar to other, be uh, other toothed whales, and they have been found with uh, plastic in their stomachs when they are been found stranded washed up on beaches uh like i said at the beginning uh it was thought until the late 90s that they were the same species but since then they've been put into two species in the same genus um and they are mainly distinguished by um pygmies being bigger than dwarfs and dwarfs prefer warmer waters than the pygmy sperm whale uh and also their dorsal fin um it's near the middle of their back on the dwarf sperm whale and then closer to the tail in uh, pygmy sperm whales. Also, uh, I think Nicole mentioned the coloration is slightly different. Like the um, the underbelly of the pygmy sperm whale is like more creamy pinkish, whereas in the dwarf sperm whale, it's just like a pale gray, I think. Yeah, so those are the two differences. So they're pretty similar other than their size and... Um, some like subtle morphology differences, but then I think that they don't overlap in terms of like 
range, so that's why they get to be... They overlap yeah. in range, but they don't, like, mix together, so that's why they get to be in two different species. Uh, a couple of just overall notes about the pygmy and dwarf sperm whales. They are both preyed upon by killer whales and large sharks, like the great white. And as characteristic of the full-size, quote-unquote, <laughs> sperm whale, uh, they do have two nostrils. And the left nostril, this is all in their blowhole, we should specify. So they have two holes as part of their blowhole, um, which is interesting because in toothed whales, if you look at like the group of toothed whales, porpoises and dolphins, visibly only have one hole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is two cavities inside um but visibly it looks like they only have one hole in their blowhole and then other uh baleen whales have two holes as part of their blowhole visibly but sperm whales kind of bridge that gap a little off topic but anyways (laughs) but very cool Uh, and characteristically of all sperm whales the full-size dwarf and pygmy the left nostril in that blowhole is significantly larger than the right also characteristic of sperm whales, why they're all called sperm whales, they do have spermaceti in the spermaceti organ in their skull, which is thought to significantly aid in echolocation, even though echolocation is already really awesome yeah. for any animal <laughs> that can do it. What would your life be like if your one of your nostrils was really much bigger than the other one? Don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> I mean, you probably wouldn't know any different, so exactly the same. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And though marine research uh, on live dwarf and pygmy sperm whales is rare, Cascadia research in Hawaii is doing some really, really cool work, including creating a photo ID catalog of dwarf sperm whales, primarily because pygmies are very rare in Hawaii. Uh, And they've even done some genetic work on dwarf sperm whales. The work that they do there... All the time. It's just amazing. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's really, really cool about the research Cascadia is doing is they've been able to ID over 200 individual dwarf sperm whales just using dorsal fin ID, which is so cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, that ID catalog has also shown really high evidence of site fidelity among individuals who've been sighted repeatedly over 15 years. That's so, so cool. Great. So cool. So we'll put the link in our show notes if you want to learn more about what Cascadia Research is doing with dwarf and pygmy sperm whales specifically. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we highly invite you to just search the rest of their site to see all of the mm-hmm. research they're doing because they yeah. are awesome. They're awesome. And when they do, when they go out on their trips, they do photo journal blogs on their website with just like photos of like everything they see, including like mola molas and crazy sharks and all sorts of things like tuna sometimes, which is crazy because tuna are just so much bigger than you remember that they are. Yep. (laughs) Very large. um, All those other Hawaiian fish. Um, And yeah, it's just incredible everything they're doing and then yeah and then false killer whales and the all the rarest cetaceans that you'll ever hear about (laughs) so great that were in the northern hemisphere at least (laughs) okay i'll stop gushing about cascadia for a while and (laughs) um before we continue with the rest of the episode 
We're going to take a little moment to tell you about how you can support our podcast and everything we do here at Whale Tales. Uh, one of the best ways you can support us is becoming a patron on patreon.com slash whaletales. For a dollar a month, you can join us at the porpoise level. For $5 a month, you can join us at the dolphin level. And for $10 a month, you can join us at the whale level. And each level comes with a variety of perks, including discounts on our merch, thank you postcards signed by the three of us, access to extended interviews or stories with our guests, and of course, you can also produce your own fun flipper fact segment of the pod. We just want to take a second to thank our patrons. They are amazing and their support means so much to us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, If you aren't able to support us financially, there are still lots of things you can do to help us out and spread the word about what we're doing. You can leave us a rating or or a review on your podcast platform like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This will help other people find us. And you can also tell your cetacean or science or podcast loving friends all about Whale Tales and the podcast so that they can listen too. You can also follow us on social media. Plus, you can send us your feedback so that we can keep making the podcast even better. Hooray! Yay! Yay! Do you know what time it is? I do. Whoop, whoop. It's time for fun flipper fact. Fun flipper fact. Fun flipper fact. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm doing lots of jazz. Amazing. I, I assumed. You can't sing like that and not do jazz. <laughs> no, it's required. Against the law. Correct. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Today's fun flipper fact is a short one, but a weird one. Never have I ever heard of this before researching for today's episode. And it is about dwarf and pygmy sperm whales. Unique to these two species in all the station world, they both have a sack that hangs internally, an internal organ sack, which hangs off of the small intestine near their anus that is filled with a dense red-brown fluid, sort of similar in look and consistency to chocolate syrup. That's a whole weird thing to get your wrap your brain around, but just go with it. And here's the crazy part. When stressed, the fluid is released to distract whatever potential stressor is there similar to how a squid or an octopus releases a cloud of ink as a distraction that's so weird so strange and so gross but very cool and has nothing to do with the fact that they eat, eat squids squid. it's not yeah. like they're they're taking the ink from yeah because yeah, lots of animals that, do that yeah. like poison dart frogs mm-hmm. are poisonous because of the food that they eat um it has nothing to do with that but it's so, so strange it is weird that it's not in full size like, yeah why? well i guess there's the two out of three like maybe because they're so big that it's not really that helpful I guess, yeah maybe and not energy yeah. also i'm really glad that i not that i normally do but i'm glad i don't have chocolate syrup in my house right now <laughs> <laughs> really upsetting yeah sure <laughs> It'll probably be upsetting anyway <laughs> the next time i interact with it Probably true. <laughs> um, but that's going to be like a new favorite fun flipper yeah. fact of mine for a long time. Yeah, it's time. up there. Especially if you explain it to somebody like without the chocolate syrup comparison and just yeah. that like yeah. they <laughs> like basically ink out of their bum, which, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Now, <laughs> I'm going to try and bring my focus back because it's time to hear about a full-size sperm whale. Um, 
this story comes from Maria at Azores Experience Whale Watching. Uh, we've got a ton of amazing stories from her and Azores Whale Watching over on our website. You should go check them out. They see sperm whales and blue whales and fin whales and say whales and falsies and all sorts of dolphins and turtles. And I'm sad every time they say a <laughs> story because I want to go there right now. Anyway, here is her story. Hi, my name is Maria, and I would like to share with you the first time I saw a sperm whale. Little did I know by then that I would end up working six months every year with these giants. The first time I saw this species was in 2012. Three years before that, little Maria had found a project called Project Ninam. Ninam after the names of the captive dolphins from Barcelona's zoo. And Inam was founded by the trainer of the orca Ulysses, while the orca was in Barcelona, and one of the dolphin trainers of the same facility. Let me tell you that now there is a short documentary about the story of this orca. It's called Ulysses. These two great souls decided to quit their jobs, tired of the abuse towards the animals witnessed in the zoo, and they start a project with the aim to spread awareness and contribute to the research of the cetacean population of the Catalan shore in the Northwest Mediterranean Sea. When I was 14, I first joined them. They were weekend expeditions on a catamaran boat, patrolling the area, trying to find dolphins, fin whales, sperm whales, marine birds, or any big fish such as sunfish or tuna. So here we were on a hot day of 2012 summer, patrolling a marine canyon off the northern coast of Catalonia. Sperm whales find a lot of food in that marine canyon, so it's well known that the whales forage there. However, we had been sailing around that area for several hours without any luck. I think I really learned to be patient during those expeditions. Suddenly, we spotted the iconic lefty blow of a sperm whale, and we approached him slowly. Albert, the captain, knew well how the behavior of a foraging lone sperm whale was, so mixing his knowledge and a bit of luck, we managed to spot the whale a few times predicting when and where he was going to surface next. I was super proud of myself as I was assisting Albert with the tracking of the whale. I would record the diving time, the coordinates and the heading, and Albert would estimate the area where we should wait for the whale to surface. Of course, his knowledge of the marine seabed and how the marine canyon is projected helped too. I felt like a little researcher, or at least that what I was doing was important. The whale would surface, I would go to the bridge, write down the time, coordinates and heading. Then I would go back to the deck to enjoy the sighting. And once the whale dived, I go back to the bridge and write down again the time, coordinates, and heading. Then we had to endure more than 50 minutes of waiting with the uncertainty 
of not knowing if we were in the correct position to see the whale again, or if the whale had turned back or changed direction for any reason. Now I know that sperm whales usually follow the same direction that they dive to and swim between 1 and 1.5 miles from their diving point. Of course, this doesn't mean that they can't also change their direction under the water sometimes. But by then, I didn't know anything about these whales. Only that they died for a very long period of time and a few more characteristics that the team of Ninam had explained to us. But I was thrilled. It was the first time that I saw a whale lifting the tail while diving. And that big bull was the second whale that I have seen in my life. The first one was a fin whale and they don't lift the tail when they dive. Seeing that waterfall from the whale's tail was breathtaking and being able to follow it for a while added a lot of value to the encounter. Since with the fin whale, we couldn't spend much time with it. Looking back to these first encounters with whales helped me to remind myself why I love my job, as they are a throwback to those rookie whale lover feelings. I remember that by that time I didn't have a proper camera, just a digital compact one, meaning that I couldn't take any decent pictures of the encounter. However, I remember that there was a girl with a great reflex camera that eventually shared the pictures with me. When the encounter finished, I was so tired, I fell asleep immediately on the deck after we lost the whale. Maybe it's a funny coincidence, maybe it's fate, but for the past four years, I've been working in the Azores. And yes, sperm whales are the resident whale here, so I get to see lots of them. I ended up learning quite a bit about them, which makes me appreciate even more that first encounter in 2012. Because now I understand better what we saw in the Mediterranean back then. I'm also fascinated by how we could spot the very same well three or four times without having an microphone to follow it more accurately while it was diving. And to finish this story, I would like to thank Project Ninam because they were like a lighthouse for the 14 years old Mario, eager to find a connection with wild cetaceans. And to be honest, I don't think I would be where I am today without them. <sighs> oh, I'm so jealous. So fun. No, me too. Can you, like, I know blue whales are at the top of most of our lists but sperm whales are just like i can't even imagine they're just so big but sometimes they're just like on the surface like hey what's up so cool uh before we wrap up uh just a seasonally appropriate call to action for you all uh, a reminder uh about being whale wise and this applies to if you're out on a boat any size boat uh stand up paddleboard to giant yacht to cruise ship um, whales really need their space and it's really important that when we are in their environment, aka the ocean, uh, that we give them that space and let them do their natural behaviors and observe from a distance. The distance for um, boats varies by species and by jurisdiction, but um, 
if you get in touch with uh, like local uh, conservation groups or um, your like local port authority, they would have all the information about those rules. But I think the you know those are like the minimum, not the maximum distance, right? So I think just remembering to just really give them their space and um, be respectful of their natural behaviors and uh, even trying to you know observe whales from from shore or from more passive. Uh, passive adventures is always a good thing to keep in mind too. Mm-hmm. And those uh, guidelines also are for if you are in the water, don't get close to a whale. Just yep. don't do it. Yeah. They'll spread their chocolate syrup sauce on you. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's really dangerous for you and for the whale. Yeah. Um, and also for drones. Um, oh yeah. We, we don't have full scientific evidence on how drones affect animals, any kind of animals. So it's best to keep your drones from away from a safe distance for their safety and for your drone safety and for everybody's safety. Let's just stay a nice amount away all the time. Indeed. Good plan. And on that note, uh, I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. We would really love to hear your thoughts on this or any episode. So please visit our website, whale-tales.org and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line. You can also tweet at us directly. I am FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H. And Nicole is Nick F. Can, C-A-N-N. You can also head to our website to subscribe to this podcast. Check out our merchandise, learn more about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read over 1,100 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a citation, we would love to add your story to our library. Click the share link on our website. You can contact us on social media. We are at whaletales underscore org on Instagram or whaletales.org on Facebook and Twitter. Or you can even email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible encounter. Finally, we want to acknowledge that we recorded today's episode on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish people and the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, as well as the homelands of the Chawasan First Nation. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us, and we hope you have a really great day.